You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 47. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also teaching reading with Bob books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. You can hear more from me on my other podcast, Aftercast. My co-host today is Misty Winkler. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. She writes about practical classical homeschooling and organizing attitudes at Simply Convivial. Misty and I are thrilled to have Karen Glass back on the show to help us kick off Season 8 today. Karen is the author of Consider This, Charlotte Mason and the Classical Tradition, and Know and Tell, The Art of Narration. Karen is part of the advisory of Ambleside Online, She has four children, mostly grown and married, who were homeschooled using Charlotte Mason's methods from beginning to end. She has been studying and writing about Charlotte Mason and classical education for over 20 years. This episode is sponsored by the book In Memoriam, a tribute to Charlotte Mason. After Charlotte Mason died in 1923, a memorial service resembling an educational conference was held in her honor. Those who had spent years observing her life and work warmly described her impact on their own lives and careers. These sentiments, some philosophical, some personal, were recorded in the book In Memoriam. In Memoriam is biography, memoir, philosophical commentary, all rolled into one. But more importantly for us, it's great February reading. You'll find it full of small, inspiring bites that warm your insides and get you philosophically motivated again. Grab your copy on Amazon today. For this episode, the three of us discussed division, how people do or don't cause it, and whether it's always wrong. It's a pretty fascinating discussion, if I do say so myself, and so without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our school every day, so we can talk about reading, unless you're Misty. What is this, Misty? Explain yourself. So in my, for my high school literature and writing class, it was middle school and high school kids. We are starting Dante's Inferno and Richard III and Cicero in Plutarch. But Richard III, Shakespeare, of course. So I was preparing for class, introducing these, and I thought, okay, Richard III, I bet I can find a YouTube video that is a quick summary of the War of the Roses. Mm. (laughs) They do exist, but I also (laughs) decided that it's actually impossible to understand the War of the Roses. (laughs) (laughs) But I kept watching, and then I watched a really cool, like, family tree of the British monarchy, starting with Alfred the Great. And so I just kind of went on a YouTube kick of... Uh, English monarchs, <laughs> because so that's this something a conspiracy theory. English monarch family tree, or just a regular one? 
No, no, it's just how they came into power. Why, why it's oh, that, the boring why it changes from it's not boring. <laughs> you don't include all the all the crazy lies. It's not I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I I love following the the British monarchy mm. stuff from Alfred to Elizabeth the first, and after oh, that wow. I lose interest. But yeah, if it's Elizabeth the first or before, then I love it. So I've actually tried to follow and understand the War of the Roses before. I think I was trying to remember. I'm pretty sure I was pregnant with Ilsa. So I remember reading this book in the doctor's office. And the author is Allison Weir, W-E-I-R. Hmm. And she has some fiction and some nonfiction. And they're really, really good. Like biographies of Eleanor of Aquitaine and a biography that uh, for each of Henry VIII's wives and this is really good history. And The Prince is in the Tower, which is appropriate for Richard III. But she has a book on the War of the Roses that I tried to read so, like 11 years ago. <laughs> and I could not. I'm going to blame that I was, I thought I could blame that I was pregnant, but I could not follow it. And so, I thought, okay, I'll just find a quick YouTube video. And it just reminded me like, no, actually... It's not actually possible to follow the War of the Roses. <laughs> the the problem, there was a king and he had too many sons. <laughs> Everyone's either having too many sons or zero sons, and it all causes problems. <laughs> <laughs> I know that because I just read Prince Caspian. Um, and isn't that the problem? Is like, Well, in that case, he would have been fine if the king had had no sons, but since he had one son... And his life was in danger. So clearly even, even one can be too many. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> well, that's what Misty said. It's either they have too many or none. Or no. none. <laughs> either way, the kingdom's in jeopardy all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that is the material point, right? So. Basically what I got out of that is stay out of politics. Yeah, there you go. Don't try to become king. I think that's going to be yeah. a thing we're going to talk about with Richard III. We did Macbeth last time. And it's like, okay, you remember Macbeth? It's kind of like that. <laughs> Someone becomes king and kills everybody. Wow. I sort of like living in a republic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Karen, what's your scale every day? Well, I, it's the brand new year, right? So I just started three books. Nothing by, Yay. nothing by house. Two of them I'm probably going to take most of the year to get through. Particularly the, the, one, the one I'm most excited about starting is Esther Meek's Loving to Know. It's this great 500-page oh. tome on epistemology that I've been wanting to read for a while. So I started it, I started it on Kindle, and then I, <clears throat> I realized I wasn't going to be able to read it that way. So now I have the book, and I, I'm going to be reading that. I also started Education in Plato's Republic by Bernard Bosanquet. 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 Hmm. Not quite sure how to say his name. Which is a book that Charlotte Mason had her, her Form 6 girls read hmm. on education. So those two books are probably going to take most of the year. And then I also started Josh Gibbs' new book, How to Be Unlucky. Oh, that's on my list of things to buy eventually. <laughs> well, let me tell you, when you buy it, well, okay. <laughs> I did not know this until I started it. Either make sure that you've read Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius before 
you read it or mm. plan to read them simultaneously. Oh, interesting. Because his, his book is kind of uh, based on that. Like he's going through that book. I've heard that. My oldest is reading that for his philosophy class this coming term. And it, I was sitting there on the shelf and I was like, I should read that so that I'm prepared for, for that book that I want to read eventually. I've read snippets of it, but I've never read the whole thing cover to cover. It's not that big though. So no, that, was, that was encouraging. Well, that, that's actually the virtue of a lot of those older books. True. You know, they had to write everything by hand, so it can be short. Not always, but sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about how that could be used as an excuse for really short narrations. I had to write it all by hand, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, it's interesting that you say that, though, that you need to read both. Because I, I got a book that I kind of knew was a book about books, but I didn't realize how much. I can't even remember what it's called right now. And so then... I mean, the introduction was really great, but I realized that I had read books by the authors she was talking about, but not the exact books she was talking about. And so now I'm trying to decide, well, I actually enjoy this book if I haven't read the books she's talking about, or do I need to go read all the books on her list in order, uh, it's like a rabbit hole. This is why I don't do well with books about books, because then I feel like I have to read everything. <laughs> <laughs> you will. If you're a real reader, that's the story of your life. You have to yes. read everything. Yes, <laughs> When do you not feel like you have to read everything? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I just need to wear a shirt that says defeated. (laughs) (laughs) I have one that says it's not hoarding if it's books. Yeah, that's a good one. Did we make that one or did you? (laughs) I I had it before and then you made made a version. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Okay, so mine, I'm still in my novel reading stage. I let myself read novels in the winter. And that's about, I guess, in summer break too. But I try not to read them very much during the school year because I neglect my children. So I'm reading The Children of Men by P.D. James. And this is like a, I don't even know what to call it. Basically, fertility has dropped off completely. So they have what they call like the omegas. It's kind of, it's kind of science fiction, except it's not sciencey. I think it's kind of semi-post-apocalyptic. Yeah, okay, yeah, it does have that feel. It does have that feel, that's true. I was trying to think of how to peg the book because it's not exactly, I think I expected it because of the way I saw it promoted to be more like action-packed or whatever, and it's really not. So I've read the first half of the book now. So I don't know, maybe there's action in the second half. But it's just basically there's this last generation and then nothing comes after that. So. It's mostly narrated by a man who's, he's not old, but he's, you know, past the age that you'd expect someone to have children and he's single and they're dealing with living in a world that has no future really. And it it is an interesting thing because he's a professor at Oxford and I had never really thought about if there were no children, how would that change the nature of teaching or the nature of the university. So like his Oxford classes have become like these pleasure classes for bored middle-aged people. (laughs) I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting. Anyway, I haven't decided if I love it or not. The jury is still out, but it's been an interesting, I've never read PD James before. So I feel like that's just a good experience (laughs) in general. I don't know. You've read it, right, Karen? Yes. Quite a long time ago now, but I, I do remember that much about it. The fact that all of a sudden there are no children, they stopped. And now they're like virtually grown up. 
that generation, yeah. that, that last year that when there were children, that's what I, why I think it has kind of a, a post-apocalyptic feel. Like that was the apocalypse. Right. It's less, a little less dramatic and catastrophic, but at the same time, it's as if it's like you have to watch the end in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely has that feel, that end of the world feel. And they're like wrapping things up. So they're deciding it's in England. So what's he called? I mean, they've gotten rid of their royalty and everything, which is kind of funny to read it because it takes place in 2021, which isn't that far away now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure it felt so future when, when, when she wrote it. Um, well, I, I mean, it's probably been over 15 years since I read that book. It was written a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. But they're, you know, they're saying, oh, we're not going to have people in outlying areas because we won't be able to guarantee power as the population decreases and different cultural issues like bringing in people from other countries basically to serve as slaves because they don't have a large enough population to have low wage earners or something. I don't know. It touches on interesting issues and it's been an interesting read. I guess that's what I would call it. Maybe at the end I'll rave about it, but so far I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. So it could maybe be a novel that you could read during a school year. <laughs> you have to put your life on hold for this novel. Yeah. Well, it's just, I don't know. There's things about it that I'm like, I find upsetting. Like, for example, and I'm like, it's just like me to manage to get upset at this person. But anyway, the, the author has, uh, not the author, the narrator I don't know if it's the author's view or not, but it has kind of that whole, like, all friendships have a sexual component. So there's this oversexed kind of thing under, and it's not, it's not like a super sexual book where I wouldn't be, I try not to read pornography. So, (laughs) but just those assumptions, I hate that implication that like men can't have real friendships because if they do, then there's some sort of weird bromance thing going on or whatever. So there's some of that underlying it. Like it just comes out in passing comments and I get annoyed. (laughs) So anyway, it's hard being an idealist. You can't just sit down and enjoy something. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't even start any fiction. All the fiction I've read lately has just been so dark and heavy that I'm just like. The depression parade. (laughs) No more, no more. That's right, because you read Loris, right? That is the most recent finish, yes. I also read this year, uh, Silence by, is it Sushako Endo or Endo Sushako? I I haven't read that. It's equally dark and heavy. And yeah, I feel like all of my fiction this year, I really picked some heavy duty stuff. And (laughs) that was, I say this year, that was 2018. So for 2019, I was like, yeah, forget fiction. (laughs) (laughs) If we can only choose sad books, then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to find something else. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, let's transition to our topical discussion. And today we're talking about division or causing division. It's not like the Scalay sisters have never been accused of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we want to talk about it. No comment. Of- <laughs> <Yeah>, really. <laughs> Was that divisive? (laughs) Probably. probably. Well, we're Um, off to a great start. Yeah, really. (laughs) Well, really, this is all strategy because we're like, we have some controversial episodes coming up or episodes that might be controversial if we let Pam talk. That's kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Pam's going to open her can of worms. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. We thought, okay, we can see how 
just with the current trends of how people discuss things, some people might get upset about things. So then we started talking just privately about the nature of division because we had got some pushback over some things Angelina said in the centrality of words episode. And anyway, backing up, it just seems like there is this cultural tendency to surround yourselves with people who completely agree with you, avoid real discussion, reject anything you don't like. Like you can just unlike and, or unfollow or unwhatever. And I mean, not that everybody has to follow and like everything. It, it's a hard balance because once you can do that, it's like, well, how much of this is fruitful? <laughs> you know? So then I think personally that tendency to not be able to have a good conversation and to immediately categorize something you don't like that somebody said as divisive, because I'm seeing that more and more. You're just being divisive. And it's like, nobody even said anything mean. They're just saying something that the other person doesn't agree with. To me, that seems like it's in direct conflict with this idea of classical education that we're having the great conversation. Like, how do you have a great conversation if people can't listen to each other? If the people who some of us are afraid to say anything because you have to walk on eggshells around people, people specializing in being easily offended. How does classical education even become a possibility if that is the culture around us? And so today we want to talk about what is real division because people are being accused of division or of being divisive when they're not actually being divisive, but there is such a thing as being divisive. So we're going to talk about what is division? How is causing division different from just having a discussion where two people don't see eye to eye? I, I want to start off really with asking, what is being divisive? Do we have a definition for that? I looked it up in the dictionary. Well, that's a good place to start <laughs> for definitions. <laughs> good job. I'll cut for you. <laughs> so I looked up divisive. And it said, tending to cause disagreement or hostility between people. So I think that makes it a little bit tricky because it's not, that means it's not necessarily, like intent actually isn't even in that definition. It means that what you did caused disagreement or hostility. So maybe you can be divisive without intending to, but I think it's really more this, it's not disagreement that's the problem that we're seeing so much as hostility. Well, actually, if you're going to think about it in those terms and define it that way, I think you're further going to ask whether or not divisive is really something that has to be painted as always negative. Mm. Because as soon as, as soon as you said that, there's no intent. Because for me, the idea of being divisive right. does imply some intent. I'm choosing. Or causing division definitely does. Right. But then as soon as you said that, I immediately thought, like you said, oh, you don't have to have intent to cause division. My first thought was Christ. What did he say? I I've come to set the fathers against the son and the mothers against mm. the daughters and so on. I mean, okay, if Christ can be divisive, then I guess we can't say that being divisive is inherently bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I so maybe we just... I feel like when uh, Brandy asked me about this topic and, and talking about it, I feel like it really has to be, you can only talk about the vision as a part of a much bigger discussion. 
to me, I mean, you, you want to talk about it, but you've got to step back a little bit and kind of yeah. put it into perspective. And so as soon as you're trying to define it, and I, I think it's part of that definition, we have to recognize the fact that just because there is a division, it doesn't mean that something bad happened. That's true. Well, I mean, I even think about this with, well, since we're homeschoolers here, like with homeschool co-ops, which I know you don't have those in Poland, <laughs> but <Yeah, right. laughs> the ones that actually try to cater to everybody are the ones where people end up having problems. Really what it is, is it's a group of people who don't see eye to eye about how to do basic things within the education of children. And so if you have someone who's unit studies, project-based learning, and someone who's an unschooler, and someone who's classical or Charlotte Mason, and the three of them get together, and they're trying to do a co-op together, they run into all sorts of problems about methods, and what should be taught, and how it should go, and dividing into categories, and finding more like-minded people when you're trying to accomplish something, like a homeschool day together with other people or something, is super helpful. I do think, though, that sometimes when people are accusing others, like when Christians are accusing others of causing division, I think they're thinking of it. I mean, I don't think they're thinking of it in a biblical way, but I think they're using biblical language. So when we're supposed to be cautious of people who are divisive, you know, the New Testament warns us in a number of places about that, that we shouldn't have people running around causing controversy and that kind of thing. I think they're categorizing the person who's saying the thing they don't like. They're putting them in that bucket. Right. And that's why I think that there's some intent. When you're talking about this negative side of division and you're using it in a pejorative way, just if you're saying that something is divisive and that's bad, that, yeah. that there's intent, that it's not unintentional division. There's intent. There's a desire to, well, okay. It's a part of this whole bigger picture going on. You've got this idea, for me anyway, in education, where you're looking for connections. Like, like Charlotte Mason's education is a science of relations, but it's, it's not just about her. I mean, this is, you know, everything is connected. Knowledge is connected. It's not all fragmented into little yeah. bitty different things. And so when you're looking for this wholeness and relationship and putting things together, to me, that's classical. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and when you're tearing things apart and cutting them up into little bitty pieces and separating them into piles, that's not. Mm -hmm. hmm. So for me, the idea of division, it's like the opposite of relational, you know, as a, instead of making connections, we're causing separations. So, and, and how is that different from making distinctions along the way while you're, you might be looking for connections and doing that, but at the same time, if you're having a conversation, you're also making distinctions. Which is talking right. about differences. Exactly. See, there still has to be, like you said, there have to be distinctions and differences, but is that really divisive? And it's only divisive is if you are ignoring the connections that are probably still. For example, you're talking about in the co-op situation where you've got some people who have different, completely, you know, dramatically different ideas about how lesson time should be conducted. And they may or they may not be able to work that way effectively. But it doesn't have to be divisive on a personal level if you at least recognize that these people want the same things you want. They're trying to educate their children and they're doing it the best way that they know how. 
You know what I'm saying? There's actually still, there's actually still a lot of similarity there. I mean, not only are they, you know, wanting to teach their children, but they're homeschooling. <laughs> They've chosen to take right. that responsibility. So there's actually an awful lot of things that you still have in common, even when you're making distinctions and saying, you know what, that isn't the way that I want to educate my children. So you might still not be able to work together, but that doesn't make it inherently divisive if you can still have a relationship. Right. Well, I, I always think of it in terms of just because you couldn't do a co-op together, because that would be covering the nexus of where you differ. So you're trying to work together and accomplish something when you really disagree on basic things about how to get to your desired goal. But right. that doesn't mean you can't go out for coffee <laughs> and exactly. hang out and enjoy each other. Or so you have should... a park day and just let the kids play. Right. Exactly. You should have a play group, not a co-op. <laughs> right. <laughs> or that you can't all attend the same church. Oh my goodness, yes. Yes. You know. And, and that, for me, the church is actually, that's the picture too, of where you've got the differences, but an essential unity, because that's the picture they give in the New Testament, right? You've yeah. got an eye, you've got a hand, they're completely different, they have entirely different functions, but they're still part of the body. And the connection matters just as much as the distinction. Mm -hmm. So I think when something becomes divisive, it's because you've lost sight of the connection. You've lost sight of the relationship or you're deliberately trying to sever something away and get rid of it and make it not be a part of, you know, anything. Like, I don't like that, so it has to cut it off. It's very much, it reminds me very much of that, you know, the idea that there's a part of the body that we don't respect that. We're going to get rid of it. Yeah. So in, in that case, it's actually the person who is removing himself that's being divisive. Oh, yes, absolutely. Being divisive isn't just the person. I mean, it could be someone saying something in order to push away people who don't agree and say, you know, you don't get to be in our club or whatever. <laughs> but it could also be, I don't want to be in your club. I'm taking my toys and leaving. <laughs> you know, both sides of that could be the one being divisive. Right. It could go either way. But to me, like I said, for me, the essential point, if something is divisive, is that you are cutting off a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the era of things like Facebook and Instagram, it's become really easy to think that way. Because if you don't like what someone else is saying, it's like a whole thing during political election seasons. You know, if you vote for this person, just unfollow, unfriend me. You know, we're not, we can't be friends because of how you voted about XYZ or whatever. But so now, and I mean, people might say, well, politics is a pretty divisive, you know, it is, it's a hot button issue, right? Um, right. But I think that has become, now we're going to unfriend over everything. <laughs> we're going to unfriend and unfollow. I really will say that within the homeschooling community, I've seen a number of things come up in places like Facebook over the last two months. And I can only conclude that people are calling something divisive when they actually don't want to have to think through an issue. Someone said something that didn't jive with a person's assumptions about education or how things should be done or whatever. And that person decided we're just going to unfriend, unfollow, leave the group, unfollow the page, like whatever it is, because we don't want to have to use our brain and reconcile and we can't stand, you know, what is that comic out there? Like someone on the internet is wrong, right? <laughs> right. You can't let anybody be wrong. So it's like our refusal to be in the presence of what we perceive to be wrongness, a state of wrongness, is actually turning off brains, I think. 
people are not, we're just not thinking through any tensions at all. Right. Well, I think there are times to stay out of a, like there are times to remove yourself and there are times where you shouldn't. So I think it's really hard because it takes a lot of discernment to figure out, you know, is this a good use of my time or not? Because I I don't need to participate in every conversation on the internet either. Right. And therein lies, I think, part of it too, because you can't have relationship and community with everyone everywhere. And there are different levels of it. And so you're going to put the most effort into a community that matters to you. Yeah. You know, I've left groups too. Just because, because it wasn't, I wasn't going to get anything out of being there. And I certainly didn't want to spend my time engaging, you know, with people where it wasn't going to be useful and productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. I guess what I'm thinking is that at some point, like, how do I put this? For me. You know, it wouldn't have crossed my mind to say that anybody else was being divisive, nor do I consider it that I was being divisive because I left, because I disconnected myself from that group, but I wasn't trying to create a problem, you know, or or any any further, you know, dissension or cutting off of relationships. It was just my own. For yourself. You have to be responsible for yourself. Right. So what I've seen is it's not just people leaving. It's causing a big stink and making generalizations about how homeschool moms are like this or Charlotte Mason moms are like this or classical education people are like this. So make saying some something really derogatory and whatever as they leave. It's not just this wise, okay, this is draining too much of my energy and now I don't have enough energy left for the things that are really my calling in life. I mean, there's definitely scriptural, but just even wisdom teachings about not embroiling ourselves in constant controversy. That's not healthy either. No, and it's, it, um, it is exhausting. It's, it's yeah. just absolutely mentally exhausting. It is. So nobody can decide for anybody how much time they should spend. Like if this is in your personal local community, then you have to engage. You can't just divide yourself from people, especially if they're in your church. That's not healthy. That's the line you don't cross. You don't start cutting out people at church because you disagree on being vegan or how you celebrate Christmas or like, you know, I mean like dumb non-essential things that we've all seen churches divide over, but none of us can decide for someone else how they should fruitfully spend their time online. With that said, though, we can talk about how to fruitfully handle a great conversation because really that's part of what Scalay Sisters is about, is the ability to talk about maybe more difficult things and think through them in the context of a fun local community. (laughs) So we have to be able to do it without getting upset. And I think it's a skill that's being lost because things like Facebook and Instagram do allow you to surround yourself with a bunch of people that are almost exactly like you. And you don't really have to deal with differences of opinion if you don't want to. Opinion is actually, to me, the key word. It's really, really important, I think. Charlotte Mason references this thing that Plato says, where he talks about, you know, everything that he's saying is based upon absolute truth and not opinion. And I read that years and years ago. Just, it's just a couple of sentences, but it really struck me that there's these two categories of ideas. <laughs> you have truth, you know, incontrovertible truth, and opinion. 
And it doesn't mean that opinion is not valuable because it's really important. I actually have been doing a lot of reading about opinion recently, but I sort of caught on to this idea. There's these two categories of thought. And I, I had teenagers, lots of, well, I have one teenager at home still, but I had lots of teenagers at home then. <laughs> and so I started talking about this all the time with my teens, like everywhere, you know, everything that came up, we started you know, listening to things or ideas and be like, you know what, is that true or is that an opinion? And just separating thoughts into that because there's some things that are incontrovertibly true and there are other things that are opinion. It doesn't mean they're wrong. People, you know, can have different opinions. But when it comes to division, see, this is, this is one of the things that, that I was thinking about. Real division, like, in a, you know, when things that really, really matter we probably shouldn't be dividing from other people on the basis of opinion, but only where a matter of absolute truth is being violated in some way. Mm. If that makes any sense, yeah. you know? So I'm trying to come up with a coherent example and nothing is coming to mind short immediately. So sorry about that. But. No, it's okay. I, I mean, I have a question because I have heard you say repeatedly that you spent deliberate time teaching your teens to differentiate between opinion and truth or opinion and fact or opinion and not opinion. <laughs> and I'm wondering how you did that because it's fascinated me. And I don't think I'm very good at teaching that really. You want to share your secret? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, obviously I, I mean, my kids are just kids. They're not like, none of us are, are just geniuses that we're having deep philosophical conversations. This is just by the way, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so if somebody makes a statement like, well, like one of the things that you were saying, you know, all Charlotte Mason homeschoolers are this. Well, stop. Is that true? <laughs> is that absolutely, you know, an absolute truth or is, is that an opinion? Hmm. How many Charlotte Mason homeschoolers do you know? Do every single one of them do that thing or think that thing? You know what I'm saying? And so it, it's just like, it's just really, I don't know, to me, almost kind of a Socratic way of thinking, just stop and hit pause and ask some questions, you know, don't just accept this at face value, at this statement of fact, but let's say, is this an opinion or is this an absolute truth? And if it is an opinion, you know, are there other valid opinions? Could there be other opinions? My husband and I were talking about this recently and there's nothing wrong with having opinions. We have to have them. I don't know. Do you know what the Latin root for the word opinion is? Oh, no. I wish my son was here. He probably... No, no, no. I know the answer. I just... Oh, just you do? <laughs> yeah, if you already knew this. No, I don't know. I, why do I know it? Because Charlotte Mason says it. That's why. Oh. I was, she Which means me. I should know. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> it's in volume four somewhere, where she's writing all this stuff about opinions. And the, the root, the Latin root of the word opinion is thinking. <laughs> just that. Oh, thinking. wow. I know, right? It's like, so basically, this is, she actually says you have an obligation to have an opinion because it really, what it really means is that you have a thinking, that you have thought about something. Mm. And so it's what I think, not what I know, if that makes sense. So with your teenagers, as you were training, I mean, did you just choose to give them pushback on some crazy thing they said every once in a while? Is, like that, is that how you taught them this? Oh, sure. But, I mean, not just them, but it could be something we heard on TV or a movie or, you know, in the pulpit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Was your husband preaching that day? 
so you know we did travel around a lot we heard a lot of preaching from a lot of different pastors sometimes sometimes a corrective was needed and you don't you don't want to do that yeah. in a critical way you know what i mean oh yeah yeah so so if you say well let's stop and think is that his opinion or is that is that the truth i mean does the bible support that you know 100% in all cases or is that his opinion and it's okay if it's his opinion fine you respect other people's opinions right to the to the extent that you can you don't have to agree with them yeah because they're not incontrovertibly yeah. true right you know we've had a couple pastors our current pastor our current senior pastor and then one that we had years ago that I've always appreciated that when they get to part of scriptural interpretation where people don't all agree, they'll actually say something like, you know, scholars disagree. And here's the two main camps of thinking on this. And here's what I think and why. But I mean, it's, I just feel like it's been so helpful to have that modeled that everything is not just what I think in the pulpit, you know, <laughs> like, right. I mean, my husband not- will say that when he's preaching sometimes he'll yeah. be like, this is just my opinion. This is what I think. Nice. And, and it, it, when he's, you know, when he knows that he has stepped outside of that, this is what the Bible absolutely says. And right. this is my opinion. He will say this part is, you know, what I think. And, and he'll be explicit about it. Yeah. Um, I think it's helpful, especially for a couple of my kids that are really black and white and think everything's right or everything's wrong or to have to hear an adult say, you know, <laughs> there's more than one way to think about this. Right. Well, that is kind of a, like a natural stage of m- maturing in your thinking, you know, and moving from that, everything is black and white. Yes, yeah. no, right, wrong. Even if you don't fully understand or appreciate or agree with everybody's opinions to at least understand how they could have a different opinion. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I said, my husband and I were talking about this just recently. You know, we have this, um, like we have two eyes. So when we view things, we see them in perspective, but we can only look at one direction or see something from one side at a time. There's mm-hmm. no physical way for us to see in 360. And in the same way that we don't, can't see things, you know, in 360 in the physical world, any subject that comes up for discussion, we simply don't have the ability to see all the sides of it. It's certainly not at the same time. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're saying we have limitations. <laughs> Yes, this is not news. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently reading Norms and Nobility with an online book club. And there's the, the thread in there between the philosophers and their rhetoricians, which keeps popping up. And I didn't really notice that recurring theme too much. I, I didn't, it didn't jump out at me before as much as it is this time. These are two, they are two different camps about how to do education. But Hicks keeps bringing them up as it was because there were two camps who disagreed. It was a fruitful disagreement. Right. Because There's a certain tension yeah. there and it makes you think. Right, right. It's kind of like the guy standing on the other side of, of a tree or, or, you know, a monument that you're looking at and you can describe your side and they can describe their side and neither of you is wrong, but you don't have the whole picture. And if you really want the whole picture, you kind of have to, you know, move a little bit toward the other guy's side and see his, at least see his perspective in part to fully appreciate what you're seeing on your side. Mm -hmm. What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I, I think it's, it's Hicks. He calls it dialectical tension, doesn't he? Yeah. Like, yeah. Th- that's like, that is really actually really important. 
to understanding a lot of things. And you see it in the Bible as well. You know, you've got this whole tension going on between law and grace all the way through the scripture. Mm. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so interesting that, you know, I think I would be tempted to say, well, it's having camps in the first place that's a problem. Oh, that is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but so to see that set up that way, it was like, well, it's okay to like, you know, quote unquote, pick a side or you have to have made some decisions to move forward, but to still be in that conversation, the back and like, there is no real back and forth if you're not talking to people who see it a little differently. Yeah. Right. And it, but see, attitude matters there too, because I mean, there's a big difference. Say you've got two camps, you know, enemies, if you want to call them that, there's a big difference between sitting down and, and negotiating and going out there with your weapons, you know, to defeat the right. other side. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's yeah. It, they were two sides who had two different schools, but they weren't enemies. You know, I think that was, that was part of it. Right. Well, they weren't enemies, but they could have some very heated discussions. And <laughs> I mean, I, but I find that fascinating because I think that today, if you have a heated discussion, then you're mean and you can't be friends. And I'm, I'm not sure that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I find it interesting to read. Well, even like some of the stuff that um, Charlotte Mason wrote about Maria Montessori. And so, I mean, she is like brutal sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, she doesn't, she leaves you in no doubt about her side, her opinion. Right, right. But she's, but she's not dismissive. No, she takes Maria Montessori very seriously. Right. And, and I'm trying to think, I can't pronounce that guy with the French name. Um, starts with an F that she writes about him. And she's like, there's so much good stuff in this book, but there's like this one really big flaw or, you Is know, it Fouillet or something like that. That's, that's the one. I'm person. holding the book in my hand right now. <laughs> yes. I can't, I can't pronounce his name, but that is, that is him. Like she that's agreed right. with a lot of what's in his book, but she considers him to have one big flaw. And so she points that out. I mean, that is, you know, respect for a lot of what he says and yet, you know, sharing her opinion in a respectful way. As we've been talking about this all through Advent and then beyond Advent, because I can't ever finish an Advent devotional in the actual 24 days of Advent, (laughs) (laughs) we've been reading Love Came Down by Sinclair Ferguson. It's been kind of fun because it's, it's been the first year where I really felt like everybody at our house was old enough for like a grown-up devotional. Like, <laughs> I mean, we, not that we haven't done them before because we've had teenagers for a while, but th- there have been years where I felt like I really was losing the younger ones, but it was okay because what I was doing in circle time was more for them, you know, so it was fine. But this year I feel like everyone's tracking in the evening too. So it's been really nice. But anyway, the whole thing is basically a devotion on 1 Corinthians 13. And when we were preparing for this, I kept thinking that the part of 1 Corinthians 13 that really applied is the idea of not being easily angered. That if you're, if you're easily offended, easily angered, you're actually not being loving towards other people. But as you're talking, it's interesting because 1 Corinthians 13 goes on and talks about how we only know in part the limitations of our own knowledge. So it talks about prophecy, all these special gifts, gifts of knowledge and prophecy. 
But it even says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. So even people with the gift of prophecy couldn't know everything. I mean, when it talks about when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And in context, it seems to me like he's actually talking about part of manhood, be understanding that there is a day when I will know fully, but I actually don't know everything right now. Yeah, that is um, one of the things that <laughs> I hate to bring it always back to say Charlotte Mason, but I just, I can't help it. It's not that I think everything she thinks is right, but I read her a lot and she sends my mind off on all these different uh-huh. thoughts. But she's talking, she was writing about um, love and justice. And I was going to ask you, Misty, because if I understand right, you, you read or listened to all of the city of God, didn't you? Oh, <laughs> I started it. No, I think I'm, I'm <laughs> eight hours in. He's, wow. I've, eight, out so of, eight, out of, eight out of like 30. <laughs> wow. Maybe a little bit more. I met the, I was at the point where he was just transitioning from after dismissing all the false gods. He was about to move toward establishing Christ's place. So, mm-hmm. so I don't. So I don't know if you got to this part of it or not. Charlotte Mason says at some point that in our human cells, every single person has these two primary. I'm going to use the word affections because Augustine uses that word, love and justice. Inherently, we have the ability to love, and inherently, we have a sense of justice, like that it's not fair, you know, thing that every mm-hmm. kid in the world has going on. And of course, because we're fallen within the, that framework of love and justice, every negative side is also possible to mm-hmm. us. But anyway, so Charlotte Mason says that about love and justice. And I think it, I'm pretty sure it comes from Augustine in the city of God. I can't remember why I think that. It's been such a long time since I made the connection. But I was doing some reading just recently, and I'm pretty sure that the connection is right and real. I just haven't read enough Augustine to be absolutely definite about where it comes from. But I was reading what other people had said about him, and they bring up these same two things, the love and the justice mm. in him. And it, apparently it is a fairly original idea with him, that they're, you know, the whole ordering of the affections is kind of his thinking. And, and that's the idea that you need to get your love and your justice right and mm. think correctly. And so he, and also Charlotte Mason, but I think she gets it from him, breaks down love and justice into various like aspects like brandy like you were talking about you know not being easily offended and i've, I've sort of forgotten why where this connects with but it all rolls back around it does roll back around to opinions yeah. because, and integrity that's the word i really wanted to bring this back to integrity because anytime you take a part for the whole you make a mistake. And that's where the division comes in, in a sense, is when you take a part for the whole. You know, somebody's, somebody, because somebody's thoughts in one particular thing, whether it be their politics or their homeschooling choices or even, you know, the church they choose to go to, that you take that as, like, that's that one part or one thing that they think is all that counts, is all that really matters. Anytime you mistake a part for the whole, you've, you're in error, basically, and it's, that is divisive. Mm-hmm. But when you have integrity, I, and, and that word, that's another one of those words that has a Latin root. You know, the, uh, the, the idea that everything is integrated, and we understand that, you know, Charlotte Mason has all these examples that she gives. 
she's talking about understanding that it has to do with loving and being just to people when you think about them. And these are just opinions, right? What you think. So like if such and such a person is say, um, she was, she, she kind of, because it's in ourselves and she's writing to young people, she kind of gives, you know, young people, kid kind of examples, like such and such a person is a sneak. So you just reject them because of that. And she's like, no, they are a shy person who is, you know, trying to get ahead and make progress for themselves. And so their behavior is wrong, but there's more to them than just that. Hmm. And so she, this is what she says that we owe to other people to be just in the way we think about them. And that that is an aspect of, you know, the Christian command to love one another. So are we talking about division still? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I was also reminded of uh, James 4, um, which is what causes quarrels and causes fights among you. Because I think that's kind of, that is where, like, oh yeah, that's what we're trying to figure out. <laughs> is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And I think that, that a part of it can come back to where our, our hope or faith is or our uncertainties or our fears about what we're doing. And so if you feel like you're, you're being attacked, it might be because you're identifying yourself with you know, the practice that you're doing or uh, the book you read or even just a single practice in your whole you know, life as a whole not just one piece of it. And so it, when, when we're uncertain about what we're doing and then maybe our uncertainty is brought, we're made aware of our uncertainty and that's uncomfortable uh, when someone disagrees with us. Right. And every disagreement isn't going to resolve with one person convincing the other to think the way they think, you know? Right. And I, I, I think that's part of the problem that you have with the people who do find division or, or want to cause division everywhere because people think differently. It's like, well, if I can't convince them to think like I do, then I want nothing to do with them. Right. So what's the goal of conversation in the first And place? so maybe, yeah, really. So it may be in some areas of your life that is productive, but I think as a, as a, a ruling practice to surround yourself only and ever with people who affirm what you already think to be right. And this is true in politics or, or education or whatever. You absolutely are not going to grow. And it probably is antithetical to anything that even has a right to call itself classical. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I mean, going back to Hicks talking about the dialectic and the two, the rhetoricians and the philosophers, they were, in a way, they were defending themselves in their conversation, but their goal wasn't necessarily to win people over to their team. It was right. like to, to iron, iron sharpening iron conversation was, you disagree with me, I'm going to have to defend myself. That's going to make my position stronger because I've had to defend myself. Right. And honestly, if you can't defend your position, if you, if you don't have really good, solid grounds for your opinion and your thinking about something, like the healthiest thing to do would be to, you know, either get some or <laughs> change it or change it. Because if you can't defend it, maybe you're wrong. 
And that's one of the other things that Charlotte Mason says about opinions. She's, she's quoting, it's, it's kind of a joke. It's like, it was something along the lines of, nobody can always be right, not even the young. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So she's writing to young people. You know, she's, you know, have the, have the courage of your opinions, you know. But at the same time, you kind of have to be humble about them because nobody can think correctly about everything like right out of the gate sometimes you just don't know enough yet and that's okay in any individual person who who kind of you know feels that way like like they have to be very defensive about being disagreed with because of those their insecurity i mean i i feel for that person because that is the society and culture that we have we have this very divisive yeah. society. And it's never about just defending your position and you know, being confident in what you think. It's always about shouting down the other side. That's just this culture that we live in. And most people aren't up for that. And so leaving and not letting anybody disagree with you feels like the only defense sometimes. It's yeah. just <laughs> our culture has a tendency to be very divisive and fragmented. And you hear about unity and America's the great melting pot, right? Everybody can live together, but not really. It's, <laughs> it's, I mean, in, the last, in my lifetime, I feel like there's been a big shift into constant fragmentation. And it's always, most arguments are framed as a dichotomy. This is another one of the things that I always talk to my, my teenagers about. You know, if somebody is telling you this or that, just stop, because there's a really good chance that two it's not the only number of possible ways to think or, or two is not the only, you know, choices available to us. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there really is only yes or no, you know, two things, but not always. And it's a really healthy thing to realize that not everything is a, is a dichotomy. Yeah. Well, and tolerance usually, I mean, really now tolerance just means you can't tell me that I'm wrong. That's what being tolerant is. You know, Charlotte Mason, I'm sorry again. I, I feel bad about always bringing up Charlotte Mason, but she just yeah, has such cool you? things. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I do no. that when you're not here, Karen. <laughs> it's, well, it's because it's not because I think Charlotte Mason is like always right. Like she's the final word. She just has, such, she's so wise and she says such smart things sometimes. But in her discussion of love and justice, she brings up tolerance and she considers it one of the negative sides of justice. It's not really loving because tolerating essentially means you don't care. It's oh. like the opposite of relationship. Oh, wow. You really just don't care. Okay. And so it's like the opposite of relationship. It's not the same thing as genuinely benevolently respecting someone else's opinion. If you tolerate them, you just don't care. You know, and so it's, it's the opposite mm -hmm. of loving. That is interesting. I you mean, whether I she's right about that or not, I definitely think that it's an interesting perspective. It is interesting. You know, I am, um, not to get off track, but just in listening to the two of you go back and forth, I was thinking that a couple of these things, I mean, actually a number of these things can really be boiled down to bad theology, which is interesting to me because theology is the queen, right? Whether it's Charlotte Mason or classical education, theology is the ultimate end and, um, and governs all the other things. And I, I just, I was thinking about this, like Misty, where you were talking about be, the being easily offended because our identity is wrapped up in something. Our theology calls us to have our identi identity in Christ. 
and our identity in uh, being a member of his body, not in that I'm a homeschooler or I like Charlotte Mason or I eat the certain way or whatever. <laughs> and so when we get into like the modern tendency to label everything and give everybody an identity that is, I'm a woman, my skin's this color, whatever, like all of that is actually telling you, it's calling to you, it's beckoning to you to leave your identity in Christ and find your identity in something else yes. and opens you up to be easily offended. Because you're no longer identifying with him. Like, why can you sit there and listen to someone denigrate some political position that you have? Because ultimately your identity is in Christ, not in the fact that you are, I don't know, Misty, what are you? A, an anarchist? <laughs> <laughs> I don't identify with any of the parties. <laughs> Me either. That's what identity yeah. I don't want. No, so... But, but I think you've hit the nail on the head with the identity thing, because that is, that is really what a lot of this um, ends up coming down to. As an American, you could be offended by sometimes what people say about Americans, you know, or, um, you know, if you're a homeschooler, if you're a Christian, um, but even within, within Christianity, if you're this, you know, this denomination, that denomination, if you identify with that above Christ, that's where the division takes place really does, isn't it? Yeah, really does. Well, I was thinking, okay, so to extend this a little bit more, that when you start talking about either trying to say to ourselves that our opinions are capital T truth, as Nancy Percy would say. But I see opinions can never be capital right. T. But I just mean Shaker. like that misunderstanding that some of us have. We get so hung up on one of our opinions that we start to treat it as if it's truth or when you're saying that the, not you, like you, this is an opinion you hold, but I'm just saying like culturally, when we start saying like the goal of this conversation is for you to conform to my opinion. And if that doesn't happen, then somehow this, this conversation wasn't good. I, anyway, I was thinking about that also as a theological weakness because our theology tells us we're not going to know fully until Christ returns. I mean, it, that like thinking that I can naively thinking that I can have a conversation and persuade or speak in a room and persuade everybody to my point of view, a hundred percent of the time, it's like believing that world peace is going to be accomplished right now because there's still sin and there's still people who want to go to war, <laughs> right? <laughs> like world peace isn't going to happen until Jesus comes back and neither is a hundred percent conformity because we only know in part right now. Right. So I'm, and I don't mean like conformity, like we'll all be cookie cutters, but I just mean like understanding what is true and what is not, that's well, not going to happen. That's also going into the room, believing yourself to be the one with all the answers. <laughs> yeah. So it's not humble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you're not going to learn and grow. Right. You're not going to actually take part in an interesting conversation because in your mind, you have nowhere left to go. <laughs> right. Well, if you I, think actually, you know fully, if you think you know fully, I mean, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but how many of us at age 16 thought we knew fully about something? <laughs> mm -hmm. I could throw out a few other ages to that. <laughs> <laughs> But, but exactly, that is just it. And honestly, until you, with your eyes wide open, I think, come to the point where you consciously realize that you were wrong and change your mind, I, I don't think until that happens that you can really appreciate 
that the, 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 to what you're talking about there, the, the fact that you can never know everything, that you can never be right about everything. Yeah. You, you actually have to consciously realize that you were wrong and correct your thinking before you, <laughs> before you can even accept the fact that, there is, that this is the case. I, and because if it happens once, you have to admit to yourself, it could happen again. Yeah. If I was wrong about that. I could be wrong again. Yeah, true. It requires a certain amount of, well, intellectual integrity, really, which is that wholeness of thinking, you know, and remembering that a part is not a whole. Yeah. So much to think about. Here. <laughs> like, this topic's even bigger than I realized. I know it really is. And, and for me, like I said, Talking about the vision without having this kind of a bigger picture with it is, is probably not going to really get you any closer to understanding, like, like what do you want to do about it? Um, you, you were wanting to define it. Yeah. Like defining division. But even if you manage to get a solid handle on, on what you think division is, I'm not really sure there's anything you can do about it. I, I, we live in a fallen world. True. It's like, he's, like, we're not going to get rid of war. We're not going to get rid of division either. True. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of living better in community with others, I mean, I just know this whole thinking through 1 Corinthians 13 for way longer than 24 days. <laughs> that's, that's really, it's really been a more powerful thing than I expected because I think I have always filtered that through, I mean, and this is so narrow and I don't even know why I did that, but basically like how I act with my family. So love is patient. I should be more patient with my children. Love is kind. So I shouldn't be snippy. You know what I mean? Like it's just been like really small and really personal and didn't, didn't really extend into all areas of life. I don't think. And so reading through this, it's written by a pastor. And so he's really talking about He's talking to different members of his congregation, you can tell, you know, as he goes on. So the different examples he's giving and all that stuff. And so then applying that to this, I was thinking, man, you know, the best thing, I mean, cause you know, at the end, I don't, you're probably not aware of this, Karen, cause I know you don't listen to lots of podcasts, but at the end of last <laughs> season, everybody wanted to kick Misty out of the book club. <laughs> which, wait, wait, which book club is this? Well, any book club ever, because, <laughs> because Misty, Only Misty Brandy, questioned actually. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. I didn't like it. She didn't like it. What? His style? No, (laughs) she didn't like it during Christmas time. (laughs) I don't know. That's, yeah, I can see how that would offend people. I I, I actually do like A Christmas Carol and I do like Charles Dickens, but I really kind of sympathize because I don't like A Tale of Two Cities. Oh. Okay. See what I'm saying? So this is I, an opportunity. <laughs> I read it, I think I think I read it too late in life. I should have read it when I was younger. I saw the end from the beginning and it just felt very trite and contrived and I, I didn't like it. Hmm. I haven't actually read that one. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> now we're gonna kick you out. I know, seriously. <laughs> The underread person in the room. You know, this is why people go to book clubs. <laughs> so they will read things that they didn't otherwise read. Uh, it's proof, proof I need one. Um, anyway, as I was thinking about everyone's desire to kick Misty out of book club, I was thinking about how taking First Corinthians, really 13, I mean, really the whole chapter, but especially verse four and on, and thinking through that in regard to 
in regard to this issue, so their the ability to coexist with other homeschoolers or other people at church or the opinions they read online or whatever and figuring out or rising to a higher level of what love really looks like. I just think that might be the quote unquote action step in the conversation. It's not just knowing what division is, but then what's the Christian response? The Christian response, right, is to leave childhood behind and become a man and know what it looks like to be loving and accept our limitations and have hope in the future, really. Be able to have a cup of coffee coffee with somebody who doesn't agree with you politically or theologically or educationally. Yeah. Well, and there's a part of it, too, of not taking yourself too seriously or even being able not only to have a conversation with someone who disagrees with you, but then also even being able to uh, make fun of yourself even or (laughs) something that you're doing. I know people have felt offended with things like I know we have on the podcast, you know, made jokes about things like the timeline song. Memorizing the timeline song isn't all of classical education or whatever. But the thing, and it's funny because it's funny. But the thing is, what, in the midst of the joke, and it doesn't always get brought out, but we memorize a timeline in my homeschool. <laughs> Right. And I still thought it was funny. <laughs> you know, that sort of, you know, we can poke fun at these little things that, that are easy to set up as like, okay, I checked the box there. So we're doing, and to make fun of particular practices being the end in themselves or being like the be all end all, that doesn't mean that we're even saying there's anything wrong with doing it because like we, we memorize a timeline song. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Exactly. I mean, <laughs> see, that's the thing. When humor is actually one of those little things that probably helps you sort out a little bit the difference between things that are just what I think and absolute truth, because you would never make fun of absolute truth. <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if you can make fun of it, it, that kind of helps you put things in perspective, really. You know, and I don't mean mockingly make fun of things, but just laugh right. about them, make a joke about it. If you can do that, it helps you keep things in perspective. Yeah. I mean, in life in general, there's just so many things that, you know. Um, there's actually a quote from Anne of Green Gables. My daughter was listening to it on audio and I was like, quick, had to go find it and write it down because <laughs> I think it's Marilla listening to Anne's first prayer. And, you know, at first she's horrified, but then she starts like trying to stifle a laugh because, and it says something like you can see the twinkle of humor in her eyes, which is really just knowing the fitness of things. Exactly. It's a, like that, a bit of perspective. Right, right. <laughs> and really, in a sense, that is, if you, if you drag it back to Augustine, that is sort of ordering the affections. It's helping to put things, to understand some things are more important than other things. You would never make a joke, probably, <laughs> you know, about something like, like the crucifixion or the resurrection or, you know, right, right. the incarnation. Like, we're not going to joke about that stuff because it's really seriously uh, important and it really matters. But, you know, how many hours a day we do school, whether we do math in the morning or the afternoon, or, you know, how many hours a week we spend in front of a screen even. I mean, we might make jokes about all of those things. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because it helps us to put them in perspective and, and understand 
you know, how important or, I mean, sometimes humor can be very convicting when you laugh yeah. at yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing. It's not inherently divisive. No, in fact, when we talk about identity and how the tendency to be easily offended can be because our identity is wrapped up in something it really shouldn't be, I think humor helps you shake it off. If you can't laugh at it. If you can let it. If you can let it. You know, yeah. You, you, it's, yeah, I agree. That's part of that, you know, putting away childish things, right? Yeah. And in a sense, behind that, lying behind that is, the, is your proper view of justice. Um, you know, hmm. re- realizing what you owe to other people and to yourself. You're not really doing yourself any favors if you, if, you're, every, if you imagine that everything about you is so sacrosanct that nobody could ever make a joke about you. You're taking yourself too seriously. It's an idolatry almost, mm-hmm. I mean, in an extreme sense, uh, if you take it too far, because a just view of, of, you know, <laughs> of yourself and your ideas is going to include the fact that sometimes, you know, the things that you do are funny to other people. <laughs> I've always been grateful that in my family, teasing was a sign of affection. (laughs) Someone laughing at you means they like you. (laughs) Someone pointing out how ridiculous you are means they like you. (laughs) We are running out of time, but I'm thinking the best way to wrap this up is to refer everyone to the Homeschooling with the Classics Instagram account. There you go. <laughs> where um, you can find all of your sacred cows attacked daily. <laughs> she has is no idea we're saying this. But, um, you know, my siblings who were homeschooled but are not yet homeschooled, they're, they're tiny ones. They're following that because, yeah, it's funny. Oh, I bet. Oh, I know. And, and really, though, like all of those sacred cows, I mean, you know that expression, sacred cow, it comes from that same concept of making an idol out of something. Yes. And pretty much anything that is an idol needs to be knocked out. <laughs> and humor is a good way to do that. You know, a friendly way to do that. It really is. Well, we probably should wrap this up. Thank you both for... Yes, you do you, edit Karen. these down, don't you, so that they're not actually 90 minutes long. Well, sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes, she does. <laughs> thank you both. This has been a fruitful discussion. Good. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoy talking to both of you. So, Yeah, it was so great. I appreciate the invitation. And well, thanks for I making time for us all the way yes. over there in Poland. <laughs> That's it for today. We are so glad you're back with us for season eight. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. If I could give you one piece of advice, it'd be to double check and make sure you are subscribed. We've got some very exciting things in the works this year and you don't want to miss out. And the easiest way to find out about these things is to subscribe, subscribe to the podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. Remember, our show notes can always be found at scalaysisters.com. Just add a slash SS and then the episode number. So for example, this episode is number 47 and the show notes are found at scalaysisters.com slash SS47. Make sense? We plan to be back in a couple weeks with an episode on the Socratic method that was a ton of fun to record and we think you're going to love it. Until then, we want to remind you, 
once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Oh, I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) Or I will know that after I'm done with my coffee. (laughs) 